How are you today? Awesome. I'm, I'm Tim. Hi. I do this here on a regular basis. So if, if I seem a little like, uh, like I might be dancing, I've had a little bit, I appreciate what Nathan says. I've, I've been like uh, a little anxious and panic attacky of late. Uh, so if I dance a little bit too much, I'll try to stay in one spot. It's just kind of, this is the funny thing is uh, sometimes what people might perceive as engaging is really just me trying to get my fidgets out. Uh, so uh, I used to, at, at, uh, at Mount Carmel, we had a, a pretty wide stage and uh, they had to put tape on two sides so that I knew what kind of box I needed to play in. Because they would have lights that hit, and like I would easily step out of them just from pacing. So anyway, um, we are in our series four, and uh, in this series uh, we are we're talking about how we are uh, for Jesus, for each other, and for the other. And as as Nathan said earlier, we are are uh, trending toward our Serve Sunday on June twenty fifth, and it will be wonderful. So you should take part in that. Uh, But we intentionally, as I mentioned last week, we've intentionally sequenced this series this way because when you you read scripture and you think about being a disciple of Jesus, uh, this is the sequence. And it's it's not really a one, two, three, as you accomplish one and you're done with that and then you move on the next. It's more of a foundation building over time. Uh, If you're for Jesus, you end up being for each other. And if you're for each other, you end up being for the other. What you have to give overflows because you stay in that sequence and keep that foundation in place. And so that's where we're going. And uh, because I like to open things up to kind of get some ideas out there with silly, frivolous things sometimes, I was thinking this week about food. Anybody ever think about food? Okay. So, um, what makes you want to eat a particular meal, to eat a particular type of food? Have you ever maybe, I don't know, you're, uh, you know, you're at the end of the week, which means you're at the end of your pantry, and you're like, we need to get food out this week, and you get into the big discussion, what are we going to eat tonight? What are we going to eat? What sounds good to you. And what is it that, that drives that? What is it that sounds good to you? What leads you to the place or whatever? Maybe, maybe you're watching TV and a, a commercial from a restaurant comes on and they've got those sizzling fake plates of food that have some artist figured out how to make food look better than real food. And, and you're looking at that thing and one of the plates is on the TV screen and you can't get that out of your head and you're like, I have to go somewhere where I can get that. And if it's Taco Bell, you regret it later. Uh, um, <laughs> maybe uh, you're out doing yard work, you know? You've, you've, you've mowed the lawn, you've, you've, you've started to put all your equipment away and a neighbor, you can tell, they've got their grill out. And you can smell what's coming from the grill. And all of a sudden you're like, i got to have that tonight. Or at the very least, if it's, you don't know what it is, because sometimes it all smells the same. It's just all good. Uh, and if you were there, you would eat all of it. But, 
Uh, it smells good, and, and, and at the very least, even if you don't know what it is that's being grilled, it makes you hungry. Or how about you're at a restaurant? <clears throat> Have you ever been in this dilemma? You're opening the menu. The menu's got a lot of options. This happened to us two weeks ago. I'm just going to be honest with you. And you are, you, are, uh, you are looking at the menu, and all of a sudden, uh, the waitstaff person, they come walking by with somebody else's food, and you see a particular plate, and you're like, I want what they're having. Whatever it is. I don't even know what it is. I don't know how to pronounce it on the menu here, but I want what they're having. I want what they're having. Now, likewise, have you ever been vegging out at home? Maybe it's late. I I don't know. In this phase of life that we're in, life feels like it's go, go, go all the time, except for those couple hours after your three-year-old is down to bed. And you can just chill. And every now and then you're like, you're not really hungry, but you're like, I'm just sitting here. Might as well eat something. And so you get up and you go to the pantry and you open the pantry and you scour the, and you're well stocked. You've, you've got all the essentials, the canned goods, all that stuff. But suddenly you realize that stale bag of chips there doesn't sound good. I'll open the fridge, see what's in there. And I don't really want that yogurt that I've had three times this week. Close the fridge. And you go sit back down. Oh, I'm not one hungry. I wasn't hungry. And you don't eat anything. Why? Because you didn't see that thing where you could say, I want what they're having. It didn't entice you. It didn't pull you in. You know, the thing about this sequence four is I think there are two ends of this sequence that are kind of no-brainers to those of us that are disciples of Jesus. I think they, in some ways, come natural to us. Maybe they're so self-evident that we, we just, we take it for granted. The first one that we looked at last week, being for Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, I hope that's a no-brainer to you. <laughs> Otherwise, you're pro- probably not a disciple of Jesus if you're not for Jesus. Anyway, I just... That's probably a no-brainer. If you've signed up for this Christianity thing, for Jesus is like, duh. Now, it's easy to say, duh. It's harder actually doing it, but you get the point. And I think on, an, on the other end of the spectrum, the one we're going to look at next week for the other, also becomes a no-brainer. Now, I understand in different uh, denominations and different expressions of the Christian faith, what that means to be for the other, how it's expressed, how it's activated both individually and corporately as a church might look different. We might champion different things. But I think we've seen enough about Jesus in the Bible and we've heard enough in church and we see enough about what's wrong with the world or what needs to improve or get better that it's easy for us to jump to that conclusion that we need to be for the other. Even if you're not really into like doing things for people, if you're for Jesus, you might end up on an evangelistic streak and want to go evangelize somebody. That's still being for the other. But it's the part in the middle that I think that we miss out on. It's the part in the middle And I think there's a variety of reasons that we miss out on this one. 
Now, obviously, you all are sitting here in church on Sunday morning like you should be. (laughs) But here's the thing, though. We live in a world where, uh, you know, expression of Christian faith, much like everything else in life, becomes so individualized, hyper-individualized, that we don't think about the importance of coming together. I know plenty of people in my life over the years that'll say things like, well, I do my worship of God out in the wilderness. Or when I'm out on a retreat all alone, just me and God, we're just kicking back. And they don't think that they need the church. Or they go to church their whole lives, but they don't like what it looks like, what it feels like, what it sounds like. And so they either stay there because they have to and they complain about it, or they hop from one to the other trying to find the perfect church. I have a newsflash for you. It doesn't exist. And not only that, not only that, but aside from whether or not you are a church attender or not, It's easy to land on being for Jesus or to think about being, uh, think about serving and loving the people outside of these walls while completely missing the opportunity to, and yes, I'm going to go ahead and spoil the whole sermon using a phrase from Jesus, to love one another. But I'm a believer who believes that you cannot give what you do not have. If you want to be for each other and for the other, but you don't have Jesus, you're not for Jesus, you cannot give what Jesus has to give to others. And I believe that it is when we learn to love one another, those closest to us, both in our family relationships and our friendships and in our church relationships, that that is the foundation and the training ground that leads us to be the best for the other people that we can be. You see, that's the thing. Being for each other is not just a command that we're going to look at here in a moment in the Gospel of John of Jesus. If you really want to be for the other if you really want to serve your community, if you really want to love and seek the lost, if you really want to make disciples, if you really want to do good to both those that love you and to those who mistreat you, as Jesus also says to do, you will not be good at doing it unless you are first for each other. And to add a little cherry on top of it all, There are a lot of things that we assume are the marks of Christian faith. For instance, if you're about discipleship, you'll know that Jesus said to baptize people as a part of making them into disciples. And so our baptism is a mark of our faith, especially those that witnessed it and can see that it really happened. That counts. But sometimes when we think about the marks of our faith, we think about the observable ones, And not the other harder-to-observe ones, harder-to-keep-up-with ones. 
And I will argue that to be for each other is not just something Jesus commands, but it is the mark of whether or not you are a disciple of Jesus. Just as much as whether you got dunked underwater. And it's not because I say so. (laughs) It's because Jesus does. So what we're going to look at is we're going to look at two passages this morning from the Gospel of John in John 13 and in 15. And both of these passages fit into a section of the Gospel of John that is called the Farewell Discourse by Geeky scholarly, Scholarly People. Discourse just sounds kind of and dry. But it's what they called it. But you could call it his farewell message to his closest followers. Because that's what it is. It starts actually when Judas leaves the room. Jesus realizes or accepts, he already knew what was going on, but he accepts that this is the moment where things are about to unfold in terms of laying down his life. And so he decides he's going to give parting words to his closest followers. And in these parting words, Jesus not only issues what he calls a new command, but he also gives his disciples assurances, comfort, promises. In fact, it's in this passage where Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will be sent to comfort, to advocate for them, to empower them to live out their faith. But it's the command, the new command that Jesus gives that we want to focus on today. And he issues it in a couple of spots, and those are the ones that we want to look at here. And the first one occurs here in John thirteen thirty-one through 35. And this is what John writes. It says, when he, that being Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, before we break that passage down, I want to go to John 15, verses 12 through 17, as Jesus expounds on this command. Jesus says again, picking up at verse 12 in John 15, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last 
so that the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. Now in these two passages, Jesus is very, very, very clear about his commandment. Can y'all shout out what he is clear about? What does Jesus say to do? I need to hear one more time. What does he say to do? There we go. Love one another. He's very clear. At one point he calls it a new command. And in the section in chapter 15 he calls it a command that he's giving them because it's not new anymore because he said it a few verses ago. But why would Jesus call this a new command? Well, it's not so much that Jesus is replacing a prior command. It's that Jesus is establishing a new community identity. See, for Jesus and his earliest followers, they were all Jewish. Their identity was wrapped up in living out their scriptures, the Old Testament, and the commands that were in them. And those commands, as Jesus says elsewhere, he did not come to abolish. Jesus isn't doing away with the commandments of God. Yes, we are not heretics here. The Old Testament is still our scripture. But what he is doing is he's forming a new means of community identity. What makes you a Jesus follower? a disciple of the Lord and Savior, the Messiah. What marks you as being his? Being his friend, as he says. Not just his servant, but his friend. Well, what marks you as being the friend and follower of Jesus is that you live out the command to love one another. And one another isn't just love everybody. Now, Jesus will be for that in other spots, but as I always like to say, let's let this text be this text and say what this text says. And there's a very specific focus that Jesus has here. He is starting a new community of disciples that he has called his own. And that new community will be stamped with approval based on whether or not they love one another, meaning Like as Jesus is talking to his disciples in this farewell message, he ain't worried about people outside the room, outside of the walls. Those people that have dedicated their life to following him, do they love one another? In the section in chapter 13, Jesus caps that command off by saying something very evangelistically minded. He says that everyone will know, everyone meaning, yes, now he's talking about those outside of this group, this new community, which if you're a Jesus follower, you are now part of. Everyone outside of that will know that you are my, being Jesus' disciples, by your love for one another. That's why we call this series four. (laughs) Because he doesn't say you will... They will know that you are my disciples by the stand you take in opposition against this thing or your particular worship preference that you argue about ad nauseum 
or whether or not you got every denominational rule and rigidity correct, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And then we might say, well, that sounds really good, but what does that mean? Because we've done a number on the word love these days. I'm not even sure I know what love means. Uh, John Mark McMillan, the, uh, the, the worship musician who wrote the song, How He Loves. You ever heard that one? Uh, oh, he loves us. Yeah, that one. Um, he's also the one that wrote the sloppy wet kiss lyrics, so you might not like him. I don't know. You know, I know, I know that churches changed it to, I forget what they changed it to. I like the original. Anyway, uh, the point is, John Mark Millen tells a story about uh, that song. And it, it, stuck, it stuck with me ever since I, I, I heard him tell this story. Uh, he wrote that song after <clears throat> some friends of his died in a tragic car accident. He was at the music studio laying down a record, and he hadn't written that song yet, and his, his best friends died in an automobile accident. And he was initially very mad at God. <laughs> Why would you do this? Trust me, I've heard that from many people over the years that have gone through life. How could you do this? But he stepped back, and he began to write this worship song, which when you know the background just makes it more powerful to say how he loves us in light of the horrible thing that you are experiencing is an act of defiance against the horrible thing you're experiencing because it's recognizing that even in your lowest moments, God is still with you and he loves us. But when he tells this story about the song, he says, you know, I use this word love and it's so lost on us. Because with the same tongue, we can tell our closest companion that we love them and in the very next breath say how much we love this cheeseburger that we're eating. And eventually the word loses all meaning. But it's important that when we say to love one another that we identify what love means here. Specifically speaking, uh, even if you don't know Greek, you've probably heard plenty of sermons that talk about the four different words for love in the Greek language, you know. And the one that Jesus uses here is the word agape, which is the kind of love that's, you know, showing a deep affection, care, concern for. It's not a romantic love. It's not just a kind of friendship love. It's a deep abiding love. That's the word that is used here in this passage. So not only do we know kind of the range of meaning of this word for love here, but we know that in the chapter 15 passage that we looked at, in verses 12 and onward, that Jesus further defines love for us. And he does this by saying no one has greater love, love than this. To lay down one's life for one's friends. So in this case, this love, this affection, this care, this concern for the one another's around us in this new community of faith, this love that marks whether or not we are legitimate members of this community of faith, 
is expressed by laying down our life for the object of our love. Now this is, of course, very powerful because, as I said before, Jesus is telling this story in the middle of the farewell discourse, his farewell message, which means he knows what's coming. That's why in chapter, in chapter 13, Jesus went on about how, um, about how uh, God is glorifying him and that he is glorifying him at once. The moment Judas leaves the room to go do the horrible thing he's going to do is the moment that everything begins that leads to Jesus dying on a cross. He is literally trending toward doing the very thing, the pinnacle thing that he is telling his disciples is the mark of love that makes them a true disciple of Jesus and the one that everyone else looking out from outside in will let them know who they really belong to. It's really hard to love one another in that way. If we make the leap from being for Jesus and going all the way over to for the other outside of these walls, and we forget that the new command Jesus issued was to love one another, to be for each other. And if you don't do the for each other part, what do you really have to give the other outside of the walls of the church? Just think about the hierarchy of time that you spend with those closest to you in life. I spend more time with my wife and my son than anybody. And then some family and friends, and honestly, I'm, I'm here a lot, so I'm spending time with you. <laughs> I'm glad about that, by the way. I was just doing that in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way. And I think if you were to take a look at the time spent with people on some level, you could probably say a similar thing. Yes, it's wonderful to go do good to our neighbors. But how do you really learn to lay down your life for the others outside of these walls if you cannot and will not do it here with those closest to you? And that's why I love that Jesus says, the world will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. It's a bit evangelistic. It's, it's, it's a bit inviting. It's, it's a bit enticing. It's, I know what it's like. It's like when you're sitting in a restaurant and the waitstaff person walks by with that plate of food that you just have your eyes on and say, I want what they're having. If the body of Christ does not love one another, if we are not for each other, why would the world looking, at, looking at, in from the outside at what we're serving on the plate want anything to do with us if we don't love one another? Trust me, we've all seen, we've all seen friend groups marriages, families that are, are tight-knit. And, 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 and you may not sit there and say, well, I want to go join that family. But you sit there and say, I want to be like them. 
I want to do what they're doing. I want to experience what they're experiencing. We are a community marked by the cross. The willingness to lay down our life for our friends. That's the command Jesus gave. So what does that look like practically speaking? Well, I don't always have the practical thing to tell you to do. I'm not going to give you the five steps to love one another in the right way because I think a lot of times you probably already know and you just, you might need an example. And so here's the one that I'm going to give you today. I had a friend named Robin when I was uh, working at Mount Carmel. And uh, Robin and I didn't start out great. My first job at Mount Carmel was I was basically the tech guy. My title was Minister of Worship Media. If you think that sounds made up, it absolutely was. I'm still not really sure what I did there. I actually used to tell people I might be the janitor here. I don't, I don't know. No, I did, I kind of did a little bit of everything. I was the jack of all trades and the master of none. I learned to do techie things on the job. Even though I'm a millennial, I'm not very techie. If you ever ask me to fix your computer, I'll look at it with you. I don't know what I'm doing. But one of my areas of responsibility is I oversaw our tech team. So I was in the tech booth a lot. And you know what happens to people in the tech booth a lot? They get a lot of the complaints. I don't know if you know that. Be nice to our tech team, by the way. I feel like I've said this recently. I'm going to say it again. Be nice to our tech team. And one of the biggest culprits of complaints in church is music. And more specifically, the volume of music. Now, I'm going to admit something to you. I crank my stereo up so loud that I don't know how I can hear anymore. I'm not sure I often do hear It's my dad's fault. He used to drive me around in his truck with the eagles blaring, and that's how I learned to enjoy music, so that's how I do it. So I have a proclivity toward loud music. But I also do care about people, so I've never looked at church and been like, let's really ride the game today uh, and just blow everybody's ears out. But naturally speaking, I'm probably more open to the volume being pushed a little bit more than others. And the first time I ever met Robin, I was in my first year or two on staff. He didn't come up and say hello to me. He was having a bit of a grouchy day. He stopped by the tech booth and said, you guys need to turn this down. It is uncomfortably loud in here. And then he went and walked out. Now, the younger me might have got a little vindictive and thought, you know, I'm going to push the envelope next time just to get out. But I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Actually, what happened is the next time he came by the sound booth, we stopped and talked to each other. He actually came and apologized for the week before. And we became friends. And one of the culminating moments for me with Robin was we were serving at a local uh, pregnancy care center. They had a a basement area that that they needed some storage stuff to be put up so that they could hold supplies uh, for uh, families that were in need of supplies that babies need. 
And those of you that have gotten to know me know two things about me because I say them all the time. One, I'm an artsy music person. And two, I'm the worst handyman in the history of the world. My middle name is Alan, by the way. And yes, I'm familiar with home improvement. Uh, I would do all the accidents that the Tim Allen character does on that show and get none of the successes done. But you know, it turned out, the funny thing about Robin was Robin actually liked music. So we bonded over our like of music, setting aside our volume differences. But I signed up to go work with uh, work uh, on a, a, a service project day that we were doing at this pregnancy care center, and I got teamed up with Robin. He was our team lead. There's something else you should know about Robin. Not too long before uh, we had this serving day, he got diagnosed with cancer. And it actually wasn't the cancer, the, the, the treatment was actually working on the cancer, but the treatment did a number on his system. And so some things started to happen cognitively and stuff. Yet he still showed up to serve. And not only did he show up to serve, but he knew how handyman challenged I was. And he took me under his wing. And I remember telling him, I don't know where things are supposed to go here, but you can trust me with a hammer. If you tell me where to hammer and where to drill, I'll do it. I'll try to do good for you. So he and I ended up putting up a big bulk of this shelving together. We had another team on another area of the shelving, and we did that stuff. And Robin and I stayed close, so close actually that when things really went downhill, and he was in hospice and so bad off that all he could really do to communicate was the squeezing of the hand. He couldn't be verbal anymore. I was there. And I was there because I had been told by his wife, Jane, how much he valued the relationship that we had formed, despite it starting off on a rocky way. We learned to share our our likes with each other. We learn to value each other, to teach each other new things, to lift up the other person. And while I know I was a pastor and I was showing up in hospice because that's part of my job, I also counted a privilege that he wanted me there because we were close. I remember the last goodbye and the squeezing of my hand and the tear that went down his eye. And yes, when I was driving home that day, knowing that was the last time I would see him, I cried like a baby. That is how I've experienced loving one another. It means getting past our differences. We don't have to like music on the same volume level to love each other. It means valuing each other enough to bring us in on the things that we're good at or being willing to be taught the things that we're not so good at. It means sharing a meal. It means showing up when we're in need. It means all those things. 
And that's just one example where I experienced someone doing it for me, and I hope I did a good job doing it back for them. And that's why I can't give you the five-step rule on how to love one another. Because I think if we're honest, we already know what that looks like. And if you don't, if you don't, then ponder what Jesus said when he said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down their life for their friend. If you know what it looks like in your own life to put those that you love before you, you know how to live out this new command of Jesus. And yes, by the way, if I haven't made it clear, it is a command of Jesus. And it is the thing that tells the world that we are his disciples. And it is the thing that Jesus told that little growing and budding community before he went to do it for them and for us. If you want to be for Jesus and you want to be for the other, here's the best way. Love one another as Christ has loved you and me. It not only is the mark of our faithfulness to Jesus, it is the literally the best evangelistic strategy in the book. And it's the way that we learn how to take love beyond these walls. Because if you know how to do it and you practice it, you can do it for the people you haven't even met yet. And that leads us to communion. Each week we take communion as a church family because we remember that Jesus, when he said, love one another as I have loved you, showed us his love by laying down his life on a cross. By giving of his body and having his blood poured out for us. That's why we take the bread and the juice, because they represent his body given and his blood poured out for us. So I'm going to give us a moment to pause and to reflect on not only what Jesus has done for us, but his call, his command, and his invitation for us to be for each other. And after we take the moment to ponder that, we will proclaim our belief that Jesus, in fact, did call us friends by taking communion as he also commanded. I invite you to take this bread and eat 
And this is his body which is given for us. And I invite you to take and drink from this cup. This is his blood which is poured out for us. Please pray with me. Dear Lord God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to uh, ponder the words of your son Jesus to his disciples that didn't just apply to them, but apply to us as disciples today. I thank you not only for Jesus' words of love, his, his many acts of love for those he encountered as we read the Gospels, but his ultimate act of love in laying down his life, not only for them, but for us. And God, I pray that as we uh, continue on, not only just on Sundays, but as we continue on about our, our week, our days ahead, that we, will, um, that we will take this to heart and that we will find opportunities or take them when they're presented to us to love one another. Uh, and, and I pray, God, that uh, you will not only inspire us to do that because that's what Jesus commanded, not just because it's a good witness, uh, but because you loved us first and we want to give what we have to those around us. And I pray, God, that anywhere we lack in being able to do that, that you will empower and embolden us by the power of your spirit to love in ways that we don't yet know how and to love in ways uh, that we never have. Thank you for being so good to us. We thank you for your love, your unending love for us. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.